last week we began our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, this week we continue in Ezra chapter 2. If you have read ahead, you know that it's quite a doozy. Um, but we will read it. We will, we will not, I will not be reading all of it, but I will be reading a significant chunk. So it'll be on the screens for those of you here. Um, and would you stand with me as we read this? Ezra 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. Ezra 2, verse 36, skipping ahead. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the son of Jeshua and Kadmiel, of the sons of Hadaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasifa, the sons of Tabo. Ezra 2, verse 55. The sons, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatiel, the sons of Pokhareth, Hezabiam, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmelah, Telharshah, Cherub, Adan, and Emer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakos, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among the enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, beside the male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers, their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold. 
5,000 minas of silver and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This is God's word. You may be seated. I think we should give a special thank you. Well, my own, my good, yeah. Give a special thank you to Jordan for reading all of that. That is a lot, and this is an interesting, interesting text before us today, right? A genealogy. I, I debated on what we should read. I debated whether we should read the whole thing, um, which some of you might be thinking seriously. You thought about reading every single name and every single number. I wanted to have mercy on poor Jordan. Um, mercy on you for standing there. But here's the thing, and this is what we're going to see throughout the, the message today. Details matter. They matter in Ezra. They matter in all of Scripture. We saw details last, last week with specific numbers of pots and pans that were coming back from their exile in Babylon. They were bringing it back to the temple. And this week, the details are the people. But what's the purpose? What, why is this here? And, and really, what does it have to do with me, with, with you today? And the answer lies in the details. Now, many years ago, I went to Disney World. And I'm sure we've got some Disney fans out there. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of that place. It was a scorching hot day in the middle of July. Not my favorite place to be. Um, but piping through the speakers that flooded uh, that, the so-called happiest place on earth, um, was that song from Cinderella. You might remember the words. I'm going to say them to you right now. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to say them to you right now. Have faith in your dreams, and someday your rainbow will come smiling through. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. Now, I know that we got a lot of Disney lovers here, here and I'm not trying to throw shade on, on Disney, that's not the point. But what, here's what I want to ask. What is that song that Cinderella is singing, you know, blissfully looking off? What does that song actually say? What does it actually mean? What does it promise? It, it's saying if I need, I, I, that I need to keep believing and my dreams will come true. Is that true? If I just believe? Believe in what Exactly. This is, this is an example, not just of something that Disney does, but this is something that our culture has bought into. I think, to a certain degree, a lot of us have bought into. These are general sayings. This song is an example of it. There are general sayings with no specific reasoning or grounding. We saw lots of them in the latest political cycle. We see, we see a lot of them regarding COVID, things we should feel or, or things that we should believe about it. We see them in the halls of our businesses or in our workplaces or in schools. Have faith. There's hope. Believe. And if we look at the church broadly today, we can find a lot of the same. Preaching and music and prayers. They offer generalized statements of love or justice or hope or peace. And these generic slogans... 
at least at first glance, can sound very nice. They can, they, they can be presented really well, and they might make us feel better in the moment about ourselves or about our circumstances. But the truth is, when things get tough, when we face challenges, they don't give us much to stand on. What we need as God's people, what you need, my brothers and sisters here today, online, tuned in with us, what we need is something solid, something firm beneath our feet, something concrete, something specific. We don't need a God who just shares with us nice sentiments, uplifting phrases. We need a God who actually works in our lives in real ways. We need a God who makes real specific promises and then fulfills those promises in real specific ways, giving us real specific tangible things to hold on to and believe in and live by. If you came in today hoping that you're going to hear some nice, vague, spiritual things, I think that our scripture reading today has already done you in. But, and this is what another pastor said, he said this, if you are looking for a real God who makes real promises in real specific ways for the good of real specific people, then this text, Ezra 2, is for you. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, I am weak, and I feel it. I am needy. Lord, I pray that in your mercy you would speak to us all now through your word. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. I pray that you give us strength and power that comes from you. Because, Lord, we need you. So I pray that you would come right now. I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would stir faith, strengthen us. For the, for the trials that are to come, for the trials that we are in right now, Lord, we need real, specific, firm, concrete truth to stand on today. Come and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I go any further, I just want to mention something to you. Uh, throughout this Ezra series, I'm relying on a lot of different preachers and Bible scholars. And I'm going to just mention a few of them to you. If, you, if that's your thing, if you want to do a little bit more research, um, here are some names of people that I've been relying a lot on. Um, Ed Clowney um, is, a, is a big one. Derek Kidner in one of his uh, commentaries has been very helpful. Nancy Guthrie does a podcast, um, Help Me Teach the Bible. She interviewed a gentleman named, a pastor who's in Atlanta named Aaron Messner. Aaron and I actually had the opportunity to jump on a Zoom call together, and he has been a huge help to me personally. Um, and and he, anything that he writes about Ezra Nehemiah is excellent. And then, of course, a lot of the usual suspects, um, Tim Keller, Kent Hughes, Vaughn Roberts. Anyway, if any of those names, if you want to get more of that, come and talk to me afterwards. I just want to make sure that you know that I am getting a ton of help. And a lot of what um, I want to teach to you are the things that they are blessing me with. And it's all from God's word. So let's get our bearings here. What's happening in Ezra 2? It's a list, right? A list of people that came in response to the restoring work of God. If you remember last week, Cyrus, the most powerful man in the world at that time, this is Ezra 1, most powerful man in the world, having just conquered Babylon, he decreed that the Israelites could return home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But what we also saw was that it was not he who was doing the decrees, it was God who was doing the work, who was moving. He was the greatest king at work there. So who's coming? 
Who is this list that is making the decision to move back to Jerusalem? Well, first off, we have leaders. That's the initial names that you see at the top of the list. That's verse 2. Zerubbabel, quite a mouthful. Jordan, you did a great job. And Jeshua are two guys that you want to remember because they're going to be instrumental in rebuilding the temple, which is one of the big themes of Ezra. Next come the lay people. Those are people who have no particular office among among the Israelites. Some are grouped by family. Some are grouped by location. Then the priests. Some of them are Levites. Uh, They're not descendants of Aaron. The priests are the direct descendants of Aaron. We're going to get more into that in a little bit. Because there's another list, if you remember, where it said the people, their their genealogy, their heritage, their family tree could not be determined. And that was important. There are temple helpers. There are servants. There are singers and gatekeepers. And then there are the animals. They made the list too. And they all make it there. And they give an offering. And they settle in their towns. That's it. That's Ezra 2. But why? Why have this long list of names and roles and even animals? If this is God's word and it's profitable, which is what the scriptures say about it, if it's profitable for us, how does a roll call become profitable for us? How does an attendance list bring profit or help to our lives? Here's what we need to know today. This is what I want you to know. The God of the Bible is a specific promise-making and a specific promise-keeping God. Here's another way to say it. This is from Aaron Messner, that guy I mentioned earlier. He said it this way. The God of the Bible is a God who chooses to accomplish his purposes in the world by making and then keeping very specific promises. That's how God chooses to work. He makes promises, specific promises, And then he keeps those specific promises. This is what I was getting at in the beginning when I was talking about slogans and sentiments. I think some of us believe that God wants to bless people generally or in generic kind of ways. But if we believe that, if we only believe um, that God has some general goodwill towards us or wants to kind of lift us generally up, then that's going to only produce a generic general faith that's going to prove flimsy in the storms of life. But that's not who God is. That's not the God of the Bible. And that's what this, this list in Ezra is all, all about. He is, a, he is a real God who makes real specific promises in real specific ways to accomplish, accomplish real specific purposes. And this list is evidence of that. Last time, you might remember, I sketched out an arc pretty quickly of the true, ultimate, great story. That is uh, God's story. To bring restoration to all things through a restorer. That story is bound together like links in a chain by promises. Promises with precision and specificity. A promise to Adam and Eve. Not just as they're leaving the garden because of their sin. They're getting cast out. Not just a promise just to cheer up or have hope. The promise was a real specific man. Who would crush Satan and restore relationship with God. God gave a real specific promise. That this man would come from Abraham's family tree. And that he would specifically bless all peoples. God is not offering slogans. Happy sayings. Feel good moments. To people in tough times. 
He has a specific man to accomplish specific purposes for a specific people. And if the promises are specific, the details of the stories in the Bible matter. This story matters. This list matters. When I was a kid, I had a book of stories that were fables, you know, the morality type things. They're, they're, each story was stood on its own and it had a, a point, a moral to it. If you don't work like the little red hen, you won't get to eat the bread when you're done. If you walk unannounced into somebody's house and you eat their porridge, they might eat you. That sort of a thing. Their collection of stories all put together and each one of them had their own individual point. That's not the Old Testament. That is not what we have in the Old Testament. It is not a collection of individual tales from which we pull general moral principles. Here's what one pastor said so well. The Old Testament is a unified story of a specific, historically rooted people who dwell in a specific place that God will work through in specific ways to bring about a universal salvation that is specific in all it accomplishes. The details, the details, the details. God has very specific plans for very specific people in very specific places. And it's about salvation for those specific people. Details matter because God keeps his specific promises. That is who he is. As the Old Testament story unfolds, we see more and more details. He gets more specific in keeping his promises. I'm reading the Action Bible with my youngest at night. Um, And this week... We read Joshua just after they took the promised land. And I love when I get a little help for the sermon prep from the kids' Bible. That's always nice. They, he, God gave them a specific inheritance, a land set apart for them. And this was according to the promise that God had made. God had made it to Moses. God had made it to Joshua too. And after all the land was theirs in Joshua 21, he says, it says this in Joshua 21. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The people of Israel could could literally, at that moment in, in history, they could literally look around and see promises fulfilled. God's promises are true. Why those specific people? Why these ever-increasing specific promises from Adam to Abraham to, to Moses and Joshua and then on to David? He chose to. He didn't have to, but God tied himself to these particular people to work his salvation through them and through no other. You might be wondering why we've been through Ezra for two weeks now and two weeks we're sweeping across the Old Testament. Here's what I want you to get. The salvation history of these specific people is essential to understanding God's purposes of salvation for you and for me. We got to get this big picture Seventy years before the book of Ezra opens, God, uh, Babylon had conquered Israel, destroyed the city, and took everyone the 1,000-mile journey to Babylon. So we talked about this a little bit last time, but I just want to take you there again. Imagine this, that moment. So 70 years, the city was destroyed. Their home is taken away. They are displaced. They're on the road to Babylon. What would be the question that they would be asking themselves? What questions would they be asking What would you be asking yourself if you were there? They'd be asking things like, are we finished? Is Israel done? 
Are we even your people anymore, God? Because everything is destroyed and everything ahead is so dark and bleak. There were thousands of years of specific promises made by a God who had specifically chosen them. They had just basically taken that land, that, that Joshua promise, that not one of his promises had failed. And yet, and yet, here they were. It seemed like God had forgotten them. Those promises seem true in the past, but what about now? Maybe the promises failed. Maybe God failed. The reason I'm taking a moment there is because I want, I'm, I'm, I'm sketching that arc again because I want you to feel how momentous, how suspenseful, how important, how significant this particular moment, the Ezra 2 moment in the history of salvation is. I'm going to admit to you, in 2021, it's hard to feel how momentous it is, especially when you just read it. It's just a list of names. For us in 2021, we know that we know who the promised restorer is. It's Jesus. We know that this promise is going to work out. We know that one day the restorer does come and that he does all these things for us. We know the details of how it happens. And so honestly, the details of the story here, it's, it's not all that relevant to me today. It might help me with some Jeopardy questions at some point, but it's not going to affect my life when I walk out of here. But if you understand the specifics, if you understand that all the specific promises of God hang in the balance in this moment, if you could put yourself in that moment, and you could feel, you could feel the tenseness of this moment. Is God going to come through? It's a question that often I think we find ourselves asking too. Because what Israel was asking in that moment, in that moment of great suspense and wonder, they're asking themselves not so much, is Israel done? That might have been the question they're asking on the surface. Is Israel done? Are we done? Is our nation just going to be a footnote in history? Are we going to be totally forgotten, totally wiped out? Our city is gone. We are gone. We're just going to blend in with Babylon. The question really is, the question underneath that is, is God done? Is God real? Is God true? Does God keep his promises? Because we are headed into exile and our city and our temple are gone and it sure looks like you're done, God. If you're even there. If, he's, if it's done, if Israel's done, then God is done. He either doesn't exist or he's a liar. If that's the end of it, when they get hauled off into exile, if that's the end of it, then yes, God is done. He isn't real. He's a liar. But Ezra 2, these people returning in accordance to God's promises shows that God is not done. God's not done because Israel's not done. God keeps his promises. The people are going back. God is bringing them back. He is restoring them. Do you feel that? The lay people, the leaders, the priests, the temple servants, they're all going back. And each and every single one of them is important. This text with all the details, all those individual people and the places and the numbers, it cries out, Israel's not done because God is not done. What specific promises do we see restored here? Here's the first one. We see the land. The land is being restored. God's, he's bringing it back. Verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read them again. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity 
of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Here's the point. They went back to their own town. They're going back to that land that God promised them long ago. It's their place. This is the promise fulfilled. God is not done. Here's the second one. The line of David. Not a huge significant part, but it's important. Part of the genealogy is proving that the line of King David, who's essential to the Messiah, to the Messianic promise. God gave David a promise that it would come from his line. The Messiah would come specifically from him. The Messiah, the restorer, that line, it's essential that that line remains unbroken. Zerubbabel, whose name is a mouthful, his name actually means born in Babylon. But he is the grandson of King Jehoiachin, who came from the line of David. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He's not just some random dude. These aren't random people. They just threw in there. They slipped into the narrative. He is living proof that God's promises of a Davidic king are still in place. God is not done. Here's the third promise. The priests. The book of Ezra, and I mentioned this a second ago, centers around rebuilding. The physical rebuilding project in focus in Ezra is the temple. And there's going to be more on that next week. But the actual goal of the temple, and really what Ezra is centered around, is rebuilding right worship. The temple is the means to right worship. But you can't rightly worship in the temple without priests. The priest's job was to offer sacrifices for sin so that man and God's relationship would be restored. They act as a mediator between sinful man and a holy God. But sacrifice didn't happen. sacrifices just didn't happen any which way that people wanted to. They had to be rightly offered. This is another example of God being rightly worshipped. And for the sacrifice to be accepted, it had to come from the right people. It came from the Levites, and specifically from descendants of Aaron. That's why determining the lineage... The family trees of these people and the discrepancy, the the, the section there where they weren't able to determine the family tree was really important. The family trees is so important because they want to make sure they've got the right people in the right roles because they want to offer right worship. Worshiping God is not some sort of religious game. We're not here this morning just to play some sort of games, to sing some songs and have some fun. That's not it. God is a holy God worthy of right worship in the right way. He requires it. So what does this list tell us? This list tells us that if they went and just built the temple, that's only part of the way back to right worship. But do they have the right people to to worship? The answer is yes. That's what this list tells us. We can trace the historic lines. They were not lost in exile. They did not die out. And we can see, yes, we can worship God. God made provision for even this. Israel's not done. Because God is not done. What about everybody else? What about all the lay people? How do they fit in? We have a specific record here. But I just remember again what it cost them. What it cost everybody. These are people who made incredible sacrifices. They chose to come. The journey of a thousand miles, most likely on foot. All along the way, they're unprotected. Ambushes, attacks, or at least a possibility. They left the most advanced country in the world. 
for a place of desolation, rubble. They left wealth, security, stability for essentially nothing. There was nothing there. But we have 42,360. That's verse 64. 42,360. You know, if you add up all the individual numbers in the list, it doesn't equal 42,360. Just a little note. It's likely because this big number includes all the women and children in the final tally. But 42,360 people came. Why? Why would all those people come? They trust a God who gave real specific promises. And that energized them. It quickened them. It empowered them. It mobilized them to step out in real life with their real families and walk that long road. They weren't out there. They didn't walk that long journey because of a vague notion of hope. It wasn't just some platitude, some real sweet saying that they said like, oh, hope's over the horizon. Just got to get over the next hill. Let's go. Thousand miles. That slogan ain't going to do it. They went because a real God made specific promises. And that motivated them to sacrificial obedience. They went and they endured and they gave when they got there. It's, this is, this list, which seems so mundane, so boring, so skippable when you're reading it. This is truly a great moment in salvation history. It looked like all had been lost. But God was not done. He brought them back. And he ensured that his promises would be accomplished. So, what about you and me? How do we take promises about the faithfulness of God and apply them to our lives right here and right now? How does God keeping detailed, specific promises matter to you? Your job tomorrow, your class, your relationships, your difficulties, your challenges. One very important thing to remember here is that because of Jesus, we live in the fulfillment of these promises. Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is not just some generic general savior who offers you a better way to think or a way to improve your general outlook on life. It also means that he was, he was not God's plan B. God didn't look at his ways of dealing people with the Old Testament and think, hmm, man, that's not working out. Maybe I should try something different. It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies, promises, and stories. It means that Jesus is that man, that promised man. Jesus is the serpent crusher promised to Adam and Eve who defanged Satan on the cross and one day will return to once and for all crush him underneath his feet. Jesus is that seed promised to Abraham who brings the deepest and most complete blessing to all nations through his life and death and resurrection. That blessing, the blessing of eternal life that we recited this morning. Jesus is the greater Joshua 
who conquered the greatest enemies we faced, sin and death and hell. And he secured for us an eternal inheritance, an eternal land, an eternal home. Jesus is the son of David, the true king who rules with perfect righteousness and justice and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. And his kingdom is not about earthly power or riches or success. It's about people, bringing people into his kingdom, specific people, chosen people. Jesus is the temple, the meeting place of God and man. We talked about this last week. He's the means by which sin is done away with. Jesus didn't come because God needed a better way to deal with sin than animal sacrifice. No, Jesus Jesus fulfilled what the law is specifically requiring. Righteousness. And he gives that to us so that we can approach God. He's not, this is, this is the point, he's not just some generic savior. He's not trying to make you feel better about yourself. He's not the plan B. He is the savior who fulfilled the specific promises of God. And he, in his incredible mercy and grace, he extends those specific promises, every single one of them, the belonging, the home, the new life, the forgiveness of sin, the meeting with God, the relationships that we have with each other. I could go on and on and on. All these specific promises, they all become yes and amen in Jesus. He is the man. He is the fulfillment. He is the one. He is who you need. He brings you into it. He brings you into what he is doing. The God who accomplished his specific purposes in Ezra and the Old Testament is the same God who is not done. He is the same God who is at work right now working his purposes in the world. And it is through that man, through Jesus. He is drawing. He draws men and women, boys and girls, people in this room, people tuning in, people around you. He draws them to himself. By his spirit, he's causing people to trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. He is making those people who trust in him, anyone who trusts in his name, he's building them into a temple, a new temple of the living God where God dwells them. Not with stones, we're living stones. He builds them out of people. He's bringing all nations, not just people from Champaign-Urbana, but people from the whole world. He is doing things that if I had time to tell you right now would blow your mind in other countries. He's doing things that would blow your mind in your own hearts, I know that. And it's all amazing and he's doing it all to display to the world that he is the living God who is at work today. He is bringing you in, making us the children of Abraham, bringing us into those promises. We are the Israel of God. And so that we inherit his promises. All the promises are yes and amen for us because of Jesus. We are those living stones. We are his house where he dwells. He knows you. He chose you. He wanted you. Every single one of you. He knows your name. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He sought you. He won you. He overcame your sin and your resistance. And he made you his own. And he's bound us all together. As his church. Every single one of us. To the work that he wants to do in the world. The end is not merely your salvation. Which is awesome. He is using us as his people to do his work to accomplish his purposes in the world. Look, Ezra, if Ezra 2 doesn't happen 
then none of that happens. If we look and we consider Ezra 2, we can know this. God is not done. God is alive. And he has specific purposes and plans for you. If God is faithful in the past and in the present and into the future, which we know that he is, then we, what does that mean for us? If we know that these promises are true, if we know that he is a promise-keeping God, that he is faithful to what he promised for us, what does it mean for us? It means that we can give our lives away to specific acts of service for the specific purposes of God. It is us together as a church that is a primary means of God bringing his blessings into the world. Do you know that? God's primary method of bringing his blessing on the world is through the church, through local churches who preach his word and practice right sacraments and love one another and extend those blessings out. We can give away our lives to the cause of building up the church, not the building, not the bricks and the mortar, the people. That's what God has done in bringing us together. This is the great work that lies before us. This is what he's entrusted to us as his people. We all have a role to play. Every single one of you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are one of those living stones and you have been built into this church, you have a role to play here. Every single person has been given gifts. You are filled with the Holy Spirit and we need every single one of you. I need you. And I mean that. You need me. I mean that too. (laughs) We all have a role to play. That is why I'm so desirous and I often pray that we can all come back together again because there's some of you that aren't here right now. That's why gathering together is so important. That's why the elders are so serious about you guys being committed to this local church and becoming members. Because we need everyone here, everyone involved, everyone ministering to one another, everyone pouring into each other's lives because you know what happens is as we pour into each other like that as we rightly worship God together, it's going to spill out to blessing. Blessing within that spills out to blessing out there. So that means that means you can't just show up on Sunday. You can't just come and be content to show up and exchange some religious platitudes with each other and then go and live a generic religious life. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the call of Jesus Christ. That is not the life you've been given. We can't be content with faith in general and abstract moral principles that people can agree on. That's the the Disney version of faith. Ezra 2 calls you and me to enter into the specificity of the gospel. We lay hold of the specific promises of God. We take specific steps of obedience in response to God. We participate in the specific purposes of God until we enter a place where he has a specific home prepared for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we need you. We are so thankful that you have fulfilled the law for us. You have kept the law perfectly so that our that your perfect righteousness becomes ours. And therefore we are brought into all the inheritance, all of the promises, all of the hope that you have bought for us. Lord, I am, I am so easily tossed. 
I pray that the specific promises of your word would be like a, like a rock beneath my feet today. That it would carry me into tomorrow. That I would remember very specifically how you have worked for us in past, present, and I would be, be filled with faith. That my brothers and sisters, we would all be filled with faith into the future. And Lord, that, that, would, that there would be a movement of your spirit among us, catalyzing us to really truly build into one another. Your living stones that you've brought together to manifest your glory to this world. Lord, you've given us specific things to do. Help us to walk in them. Thank you, Jesus, for your incredible grace. Thank you that the grace to even walk out in those works, the works have been prepared for us beforehand. You've given, you'll give us the strength to, to do it, to live it, and we need it. And when we mess up, Lord, we're so thankful that you're ready to receive us again and again. We love you. We are so thankful for the gospel again. We're thankful that the gospel is real, that you are really alive and you are moving and that you are not done. You're not done with me. You're not done with us. You have great things for us. And we, love that. we trust in you. We trust in your promises. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.